listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody, to the second part of Episode 1, William McKinley vs. the World. If you haven't listened to Part 1, go back and download it. Uh, this episode will focus on the four and a half years McKinley spends in the White House. So again, if you haven't heard Part 1, go back and, and download it. Episode 1 is his journey to the presidency. But so much happened in that election in his years as Commander-in-Chief that we really needed two parts to get it all in. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. Press that button on your phone. Feel free to give us a review on there as well. Uh, we're known to read a review or two on the air. So review the show, and, and we'll probably play it for you sometime this season. This episode is going to focus on the McKinley presidency and the sea change that it will represent in history for the United States. Well, for better or worse, there's U.S. history before the McKinley administration and after. The U.S. becomes a major player on the world stage, the, really the kind of global power that you would recognize today after McKinley's time in office. We were never really an isolationist nation again after his nearly five years as the commander-in-chief. We'll win a war against the European power. We'll turn our attention to the continent of Asia for the first time, become an economic superpower that would revolutionize the world economy in the 20th century. Our guest today and author Robert Mary's book is called President McKinley, Architect of the American Century. And I couldn't agree more with that subtitle. Again, in this part two, so if you haven't listened, go back and listen to part one. Get up to speed about how McKinley became the 25th president. But we'll move forward now to 1897 as he takes office. It's part two of William McKinley versus the world. Our guest and biographer Robert Mary gets us started with an anecdote from an Ohio congressman, Benjamin Butterworth. Butterworth from Southwest Ohio. Uh, is talking about McKinley's style of leadership and how he always seemed to get exactly what he wanted. Well, Butterworth was a uh, congressman, and he was a, a solid Republican uh, of Ohio. He was very close to Mark Hanna, who was McKinley's go-to man. Um, he was wary of McKinley, and I think that his little anecdote explains why. Um, that, you know, if, if uh, Will McKinley and I were walking through an orchard with but one bearing tree, and that tree had but two apples on it, and we happened to walk under that tree, McKinley would pick both of them. He'd put one in his pocket. He'd take a bite out of the other one, and he turned to me and say in a very friendly tone, Ben, do you like apples? <laughs> it reflects, I think, what we're saying about McKinley. And uh, I have a, sub, a chapter subhead that says, you know, he, he got his way as usual. He always seemed to get his way. He always seemed to take what he wanted to take, but he did it in such a mild-mannered, easy, enjoyable, um, gentlemanly fashion that people let him get away with it. But Butterworth wasn't letting him get away with it because Butterworth uh, sort of saw through all that. McKinley takes office on March 4th, 1897. He immediately is a different kind of president. The president had been marginalized since Lincoln's massive growth of the executive branch 
uh, and executive branch power during the war. McKinley brought that power back to the executive. Again, he was using more of a soft power. We talked to Robert Mary about how McKinley expanded the power and the reach of the executive branch, a power that has grown with every presidency with very few exceptions in the 20th and 21st century. I do believe that, and, and I would say that in McKinley's case, it is uh, pretty subtle and not, not anything approaching the actual power structural interrelationships that we saw later with Roosevelt and, and uh, Lyndon Johnson and other presidents who accepted that uh, transformation. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. The, what really altered the balance of power between the executive and the legislative branches was uh, Reconstruction, when Congress essentially took over the presidency uh, of Andrew Johnson uh, and attempted to destroy Johnson because he wasn't uh, um, knuckling under their idea of the policies that they wanted for Reconstruction. And Congress won, and Johnson was basically emasculated. Uh, and um, and that that lingered that interrelationship the balance of power uh, lingered until McKinley's time. Now it would be incorrect to say that McKinley structurally altered the balance of power, but he refused to accept um, the sort of the uh, congressional dominance or the congressional sort of. Um, it's a uh, um, um, better position in terms of the in relationship between the branches. And how did he do that? Well, he did that in a lot of ways. Number one, he worked with Congress uh, in ways that other presidents hadn't done. They'd sort of given up. They'd sort of ceded to Congress, and he didn't do that. Uh, and so he dealt with a lot of members of Congress. He knew them all from his 14 years in, in the House. Uh, and uh, he worked with the media. Uh, he employed the media. He traveled around the country and gave a lot of speeches uh, so that people would understand what he was trying to do. And all of that led to sort of an accumulation of power vis-a-vis Congress that pre- previous presidents in that period uh, had not had. And as I say, it wasn't something that he institutionalized. He didn't, he didn't bequest it to his successors, but, of course, his immediate successor, Teddy Roosevelt, very much agreed with that uh, view of what the interrelationship should be. Uh, and he did do more to institutionalize uh, the reemergence of the, of the executive branch. We talked with Bob about how McKinley you know, brings in Theodore Roosevelt to his administration, brings him in as the assistant secretary of the Navy. McKinley was very skeptical of Roosevelt at first, but he gives him the position he asked for. Uh, some friends lobbying on his behalf, and actually McKinley and Roosevelt would become friends during his first term. Roosevelt had not supported McKinley at the convention. His experience at that point had been as a New York State Assemblyman uh, and later the Commissioner of the New York Police. He had written a number of books, but was not yet super famous as we know him now. Roosevelt all but takes over the Navy Department in his time there from 1897 to 1898. We talked to Robert Mary just about the relationship between William McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt is one of the fascinating uh, politicians of our history. Maybe in terms of IQ, may have been the, 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 the smartest, the most brilliant. Um, what that guy could do with his brain power was kind of amazing. He could write these, dash off these books and 
and understand things and and uh, find just the right language for uh, moving people uh, in, uh, in in hot uh, political environments. Um, but he was often out of control. Uh, there was a, a, a foreign diplomat in Washington who described him to somebody else by saying, you got to remember that the president is essentially six years old. <laughs> and uh, he was a little bit like that. So when a lot of his friends, and he had many, many friends who loved him because he was so fun and exciting and amusing all the time, um, were trying to get McKinley to um, name him as assistant naval secretary. McKinley resisted. And he said to some of them, he said, you know, your friend uh, Roosevelt there, you know, he seems to agitate everything, and I'm not sure I need that. And, uh, but he ultimately succumbed to these uh, entreaties, and uh, T.R. became assistant naval secretary under the former, I mean, under the, uh, the, the, the Navy secretary, who was a guy by the name of Long, who had been the governor of Massachusetts. Long was uh, not a young man, and he was a little bit enervated, um, and uh, he liked to sort of break away in the afternoon to go home nearby uh, for uh, his afternoon naps, but he found he couldn't do it because he didn't know what Roosevelt was going to do with the power that he held as a result of his absenting himself from his office for a matter of an hour and a half or whatever. Um, and Long liked um, Roosevelt, but um, didn't like the way he conducted himself. Um, but uh, T.R. But uh, McKinley didn't have to worry about that because he, you know, he that wasn't his problem. That was Long's problem, and he developed a, a appreciation and a kind of an affection for T.R. He invited him a lot on these um, buggy rides that he would take in the afternoons. And, uh, I think it was probably because he found him amusing and, and scintillating and fun and, uh, sometimes exciting, uh, and probably got a lot of good counsel from Roosevelt who had a way of being out of control, but usually was right on the merits of the issues that he got involved in. William McKinley was certainly an abolitionist growing up. He was proud of his civil war service and their mission to end slavery but his record was unexceptional towards black issues in his time as president. Yeah, he appointed African Americans to some federal posts, not a ton. He spoke out against lynching and promoted anti-lynching legislation. He also talked a big game. He had overwhelming black support in the election, but the ball was not moved forward during his administration. This has always been a frustrating part of McKinley, pretty much a mark on his administration, an administration that could have been better, especially when he reached the heights of popularity that he did. And it certainly must have been frustrating and a letdown for all the African-Americans who had supported him. We talked with Bob Mary about McKinley's complicated and what he calls patronizing attitude towards African-American civil rights issues. McKinley's great mentor was um, Rutherford B. Hayes, who was his uh, commanding officer during the Civil War. And then um, was elected to Congress during the Civil War and elected to the presidency in 1876, the same year that McKinley was elected to Congress. Um, and I guess Hayes's greatest historical uh, factoid uh, is that he ended Reconstruction. And he was, he was elected in a very contested election in 1876. There was questions about um, whether it was kind of a stolen election, not that he himself actually stole it, but nevertheless, it was highly contested. 
uh, and um, it was settled only through some sort of backroom machinations. Uh, and that ended Reconstruction. And the country, in my view, this has become a hot sort of political issue among academics who study this, um, but in my view, the country essentially made an accommodation, which was that bringing the country back together after, what, 730,000 deaths in the Civil War and the devastation and, and, and all of that and the hatreds and the animosities was more important uh, than the plight of African Americans in the in the wake uh, of that civil war, which of course ended slavery and gave them those um, constitutional amendments for protection. Uh, and McKinley grew up in a totally almost rabid abolitionist family. They were against slavery, like most people in Ohio. They their family subscribed to Horace Greeley's Weekly Tribune, which was highly abolitionist and imbibed all that stuff. Um, but afterwards, I think it's fair to say, McKinley doesn't leave a record on this, but it's fair to say that, that he accepted that consensus, that uh, the job of the politicians was to bring the country back together, which was not that easy to do, in part because of the abuses of Reconstruction. Um, and... So while he was, he took, as a result of this, he took a kind of a um, patronizing attitude towards African-Americans and African-American groups. He would speak to them. He was always very cordial, uh, treated them very, very well. But uh, the patronizing aspect came when he would be, you know, constantly praising them for, you know, doing such a good job under such adverse conditions not looking at the adverse conditions as a problem for the republic at that time. Uh, and he took some heat for that. I mean, he got uh, slammed by um, black organizations um, and at conventions and whatnot. Um, um, but that was kind of a, an aspect of American politics that has come under a lot of criticism by academics in recent decades, but for a long time, uh, Americans kind of concluded that that was an unfortunate trade-off. What McKinley's administration would ultimately be known for were these huge events in foreign policy. We start with the nation of Cuba, just 90 miles off the Florida coast. Revolution had been simmering on the island of Cuba for decades. Rebels had been working for Cuban independence since the 1860s, and by 1895, it had blown into an island-wide war. The Spanish were not going to let the island go. They adopt draconian measures to put down the revolution. People are dying uh, not just by you know the gun, but by starvation and disease. They basically move all of the rural Cubans into concentration camps so they can't feed and, and aid the rebellion. It's said that around 300,000 Cubans die of starvation and disease in these years. And their cause would gain a lot of traction during the McKinley administration. We talk with Kevin Kern, professor of history from the University of Akron, about the humanitarian crisis that was the Cuban Revolution and the drive of Americans towards joining the Imperial Club. Yeah, you know, the Spanish Empire had been on the wane for 
better, more than a century. Of course, they had lost most of their colonies in, uh, in the Americas, but they were still hanging on to a, a few. But even there, especially in places like Cuba, there were people there who wanted to have their independence. And like some of those other North and South American countries had in the earlier 1800s, there is a revolutionary movement to, to throw off the, the Spanish uh, imperial yoke and to become independent. Spain is not keen to lose what few colonies it still has, so it really begins to crack down, especially in places like Cuba. And, uh, the harder they crack down, uh, the more the people are, are resistant to this. Uh, they use, the Spanish use increasingly severe means, uh, what we would call concentration camps today. Uh, and so uh, all of this is happening like, you know, 90 miles off the border of the United States. This is seen by a number of different constituencies uh, in the United States as something that the United States ought to engage with. Now, there were some people in the United States who sympathized with the Cuban people on purely humanitarian grounds, the, the traditional ideas of, uh, you know, an empire of liberty throughout the Americas, that there shouldn't be any imperialism in, in the Americas. Uh, and they wanted to help the Cuban people for, you know, uh, humanitarian reasons and for the, just the idea of democracy. But there were other people, uh, and this is not a mutually exclusive set. There were some people, there's a lot of overlap here, people who saw this as an opportunity. Uh, this is a period of time of a, a huge resurgence in imperialism. This has to do with uh, the rise of the industrial age. All of a sudden, all these old colonies, which had acquired in, in many years past, all of a sudden were seen as uh, new sources of raw materials for this new industrial economy. And so not only uh, does imperialism, it resurges. Uh, these countries start annexing more uh, colonies around the world. Now, the United States had not been part of the earlier uh, colonial effort uh, around the globe. It was mostly concerned for the first century of its history with uh, just expand cross-continental expansion. Uh, it, it was colonizing uh, North America, but it was colonizing continental North America, taking the land from uh, the Indian groups who had possessed it before. But all that is pretty much over by 1890. Uh, the last res Indians have been put on reservations. Uh, and you see some Americans uh, looking beyond the shores of the United States and seeing that all these other countries, not just England and Germany and France, but you know places like Belgium and Denmark and Portugal, they have these these colonies around the world. And a lot of people in the United States says, hey, we are a new world power. We are a new industrial power. We ought to be one of the big boys. We need to be in this imperial club. Newspapers were king in the 1890s. They were actually as biased as people see the mainstream press is today. They were even more open about it. The term was known as yellow journalism, prone to exaggeration, creating panic amongst its readers, all to sell newspapers. You had major publishers like William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer. They were at the forefront. It's big business. I mean, just think, there's no radio, there's, there's no podcasts, there's no TV, there's no internet. The newspapers were the only game in town. Through mass production of media. You have a national media for the first time. You have newspaper change. You have national magazines. And they're all fighting with each other for uh, for subscriptions. There's the old 
truism in journalism, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, you want to throw that headline out there that's going to convince that person at the newsstand to buy your paper rather than the other person's paper. Furthermore, at this time, there was nothing like a, an objective press. Most newspapers, almost all newspapers, had a very open political slant, political bias. They were a Republican newspaper, they were a Democratic newspaper, uh, and they were very clear about which, uh, which side that they were on. And of course, chief among these people in the, in the period of yellow journalism were William Randolph Hearst, who's New York Journal, Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer's World. They were in, uh, they, they really didn't like each other personally. They were always trying to outdo the other. They were outbidding each other for popular cartoonists. In fact, that's why called yellow journalism, uh, you know, Hearst poaches the guy who makes the first uh, cartoon strip called The Yellow Kid from uh, from Pulitzer. And, and of course, nothing bleeds more than war. If it bleeds, it leads. You've got real blood going on down there in Cuba. Uh, and so uh, there's this drumbeat coming from these media uh, entities, these newspapers. They're whipping up this uh, outrage. It's alleged that William Randolph Hearst sent a letter to his artist in Cuba, Frederick Remington. Remington sent him a telegram and said, Everything is quiet. There is no trouble. There will be no war. I wish to return. Hearst sent back a note, allegedly. It said, Please remain. You furnish the pictures, and I'll furnish the war. Now, it's doubtful that he actually said that, but the newspapers were certainly guilty of trying to drum up war with Spain over its treatment of the Cubans. Their sales went through the roof in the build-up to the war. But it wasn't until an explosion in a foreign harbor that really rocked the country to its core. A country that suddenly, with the help of these newspapers, would support the war with Spain. We asked University of Akron professor Kevin Kern about William Randolph Hearst and his attempt to drum up a war with Spain. Is there any truth to William Randolph Hearst's famous line, you furnish the pictures, I'll furnish the war? No. And yes, on the no side, there is no absolutely no evidence that William Randolph Hearst actually said that. And uh, most people who study this issue tend to concur that he probably never really uh, sent such a telegram. But, and I think this is an important but, in some ways, I, I think to push the country to war. So if he didn't say it, he, he probably kind of wished he had said it. Uh, and, uh, and so in that sense, there is a larger truth that these big media moguls really felt that they were trying to influence these national and international events. McKinley had offered to buy Cuba, but Spain had refused. Tensions heightened. The United States sent a, a ship to the USS Maine to Havana Harbor in early 1898. It actually seemed to have a calming effect on the city. The U.S. officers were going to the yacht club in Havana and bullfights, mingling with Spanish officers. Things were relatively calm in the capital. Reports were still coming in about the reconcentrados, you know, the people in the uh, concentration camps throughout the countryside. But in February 1898, things seemed calm in Cuba. But suddenly, U.S. history and world history would change on the evening of February 15th, 1898. Our guest, Robert Mary, he wouldn't liken it to a 9-11 or a Pearl Harbor type of moment, since those were just obvious direct attacks. And he's right. But the explosion of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor that night, it had a very similar impact on the American public. Not to denigrate the lives of those lost on those two infamous days in U.S. history, December 7, 1941, September 11, 2001. But for an American at the turn of the century, 
February 15th, 1898, it had that same feeling. At 9.40 p.m., the USS Maine exploded in Havana Harbor. It shook the city. Debris fell on the water and on the shore. Fires raged aboard the ship. Screams were heard from the shore. A journalist that actually got on a rescue boat that was paddling out to the ship to grab survivors. He gave this account. The scene as it unfolded itself to our vision was terrible in its significance. Great masses of twisted and bent iron plates and beams were thrown up in confusion midships. The bow had disappeared. The four masts and smokestacks had fallen. And to add to the horror and danger, the mass of the wreckage amidships was all on fire. And at frequent interviews, a loud report followed by a whistling sound of fragments flying through the air marked another explosion of a six-pound shell. The scene was only lit by the red glare of flames dancing on the black water till the beam of a searchlight swept across our part of the harbor revealing we were surrounded by dismembered bodies. Great God, they're all gone. This is the work of a torpedo, and it marks the beginning of the end. Two hundred and sixty-eight American sailors were dead. A mine or torpedo from the Spanish was suspected. The headline in Hearst's paper reads, Spanish Treachery. Spain denies they have anything to do with it. Honestly, it makes very little sense for them to bring the entire weight of the U.S. armed forces down on themselves. It could have been a rebel operation to bring the U.S. into the war on its side against the Spanish. Or it could have been just a spontaneous coal fire that spread to the ship's nearby arsenal, a major design flaw in American Navy vessels at the time. But either way, the U.S. public and men like Theodore Roosevelt, his friend, Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, these hawks, they didn't care. It means war. Crowds chanting, remember the Maine, to hell with Spain. The country is whipped into a war frenzy, bent on revenge. They want to kick the Spanish out of the Western Hemisphere forever. Robert Mary talks with us about the explosion of the USS Maine and the political fallout. The consensus and some of the later evidence uh, indicated uh, that it was an internal explosion, which meant that it came from within and, and it was um, not something that had been perpetrated from outside. Um, but uh, it happened. It occurred in a very incendiary, uh, pregnant time in the relations between the United States and Spain over what was going on in Cuba. And Spain was desperately trying to retain its ownership, its uh, colonial uh, hegemony over um, Cuba, which was a kind of the jewel in the crown of its empire. Uh, and the uh, Cuban insurrection was doing everything they could to uh, thwart that, and the um, policies of Spain became increasingly brutal, uh, and many, many people were dying, starving, because of the sort of almost concentration camp approach uh, that Spain took in trying to control uh, the insurrection. Um, and so in America, there was a tremendous amount of um, hostility towards Spain and a great um, wave of sentiment, political sentiment, in favor of basically going down there and kicking the Spaniards out. McKinley was not in favor of doing it like that. Uh, he wanted to get them out of there, but he thought that uh, we could do it through diplomatic pressure, which he was exerting uh, very, very assiduously and um, without any hesitation um, or give and take um, 
Um, and what happened when the main blew up was it just basically made it impossible to control that um, burgeoning sentiment in America. So I think it was, became clear to McKinley that there was going to be a war as soon as that explosion occurred. As the public clamors for war, McKinley's not so certain. He asked for a formal inquiry into the explosion, a prudent move, but this sparks people to call for his impeachment. Roosevelt says the president has the backbone of a chocolate eclair. A joke circles that why is McKinley's brain like his bed? Someone has to make it up for him before he can use it. Jokes weren't as good in the late 19th century. But McKinley was cautious. The country was not prepared for war. The all-volunteer force was small, inexperienced, underarmed. We had been at peace for over 30 years. Victory was far from assured in a war with a European power. McKinley didn't want to be responsible for the thousands of deaths of American boys fighting in its first international war. McKinley remembers his war experience. He says, I've seen the dead stack like cordwood at Antietam. He doesn't want to raise arms again unless it's completely necessary. This period between February the 1898 and April, the explosion of the Maine to the Congress's declaration of war, it completely debunks the idea that McKinley was a warmonger or had this desire for empire. McKinley was a strong leader, but even moderates are abandoning his negotiating tactics with the Spanish. Robert Mary explains what he believes was the true nature of McKinley's thinking at the time. Now, on the question of the Spanish-American War, um, in which many people felt that he resisted the war and didn't want it, um, and there's a germ of truth in that, um, but the fact of the matter is he wanted Spain out of the Caribbean, and he was willing to go to war to get that end into means. But the fact is... Uh, he tried very, very hard to get that goal satisfied uh, without war. But when it became clear that war, we were moving towards war, he embraced that totally. And all you have to do is look at the cables between our ambassador to Madrid at that time in Washington to realize that this government was moving towards war and knew exactly what it was doing. Congress authorizes $50 million in war spending. This stuns the Spanish. They don't have that kind of money. How do we have that kind of money? McKinley's naval inquiry comes back, and it says the Maine was destroyed by a mine. And on April 21st, McKinley orders a blockade of the island. The House of Representatives votes 310 to 6 for war. The Senate much closer, I think 42-35. But they vote for war, too. And on April 25th, the U.S. declares war on Spain. Well, there was a lot of luck, but as you kind of note, uh, Spain as a world empire was kind of rotting from within. Uh, it really wasn't in a position to uh, maintain uh, the far-flung uh, possessions that it had had, and it had lost, of course, uh, uh, Mexico and all of Latin America, so it was clinging to what it had left, which wasn't a lot. You know, the Philippines and Cuba particularly, Puerto Rico, a few islands in the Pacific, um, and um, America, meanwhile, was this burgeoning nation. Uh, I, I titled my book on James Polk, A Country of Vast Designs, because that was also a book about American expansionism across the midsection of the North America. Uh, and we continued to be a nation of a country of vast designs uh, in the 1890s and into the new century 
where we basically said we're going into the world and no one's going to stop us. And so what were we doing then? Well, we were planning to um, build the Panama, what became the Panama Canal. We acquired Hawaii, which is one of the most significant strategic spots upon the entire globe. Uh, and we went to war with Spain. Uh, and um, and we had it. We had the technology. We had the money. We had the wherewithal. We had the energy. We had the um, the, the, the fervor of of our population. Um, and that just became impossible for Spain. Just a week later, May 1st, 1898, Admiral Dewey and the Pacific Fleet arrive in Manila Harbor in the Philippines. This was the jewel of the Spanish Empire in Asia. This country, like Cuba, was in the middle of a violent revolt as well. The Philippine insurrectos, as they were called, were battling the Spanish with a wicked guerrilla warfare campaign. Admiral Dewey was there so fast because Roosevelt then the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, had ordered him there from Hong Kong to engage the Spanish. And it's on that morning that Dewey gives his famous order, you may fire when ready, Gridley. Within a few hours, Dewey becomes an American hero. They rout the Spanish fleet. It's said that one American dies, and that was like heat stroke or, or a heart attack or something. It wasn't a war wound. The Philippines were ours. The entire Spanish fleet is either sunk or run aground or run down. A ship on its way to fight for the Americans in Spain stops in Guam, forces the surrender of the Spanish there on that island. Now Guam is an American territory, and it still is today. I implore you to go listen to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. It's the best history podcast out there. He doesn't do enough of them, uh, unfortunately, but it's pretty worth it when he does. It's kind of the podcast that got me off my ass to go make some, some history podcasts. But his episode, The American Peril from 2013, details the Spanish-American War and the rise of American imperialism. It's like four hours long, uh, but totally worth it. I think it's off free iTunes now, but I just bought it for like $2.99 just to listen to it again. Uh, So go do that. Go buy that or go listen to any Dan Carlin Hardcore History episode. Kevin discusses uh, why the American Navy has these huge victories and whether it was a surprise to the world community. The U.S. Navy had these modern warships, these uh, armored vessels. The, uh, the Spanish warships were still, you know, sailing vessels that had wooden sides. Uh, it was about as complete and utter a victory you can imagine. Uh, the, the the entire Spanish fleet is uh, destroyed and captured. There's a huge loss of life amongst the Spanish, as you said. The Americans only lost one. Uh, one sailor. Uh, I guess the the shocking thing is just how complete uh, the the victory was. Uh, It was also probably surprising in the terms of just how swift this was. Now, again, the Spanish Empire had been on the wane for more than a century. Uh, And of course, the United States was a major rising power. I think most people around the world, if if they were laying bets, they would not be betting on the Spanish here. Uh, but uh, as, as you said in the other podcast, you know, John Hay called this a splendid little war. It was a really, really quick uh, affair. The, the, the rapidity with which the United States was able to defeat uh, the Spanish uh, was, was probably surprising even to uh, a lot of American advocates uh, of the war. 
So, uh, no, I don't think necessarily that the, the, the fact that the United States uh, won the war was, uh, was particularly uh, surprising. The quickness with which uh, it just utterly defeated the Span Spanish was, uh, was probably a bit of a surprise. The U.S. Navy also destroys the Spanish fleet in Cuba with little to no loss of life at Santiago. This still leaves the Spanish army in Cuba to be conquered by the U.S. This is a much more difficult task. It's really known for the Battle of San Juan Hill, a number of other small battles. But the Battle of San Juan Hill is the one where Theodore Roosevelt and his Rough Riders, the first American volunteer infantry, they take San Juan Hill, nearby Kettle Hill. T.R. gets off his horse and leads a charge up the hill to assault the Spanish position. Many Americans, over 200, would die in that battle. Also known for the bravery of the so-called Buffalo Soldiers, the African-American brigades that fought so bravely uh, next to Roosevelt and his Rough Riders. More than 200 U.S. men died at San Juan and Kettle Hill. Only 400 or so would die in the entire war, uh, the entire Cuban War. Another 2,000 U.S. soldiers would die from disease in Cuba and Puerto Rico. But Roosevelt becomes a hero. He left his Navy Department job to go to war. He starts this Rough Rider uh, army. He's only like 39 years old, but he's an instant celebrity, just like Admiral Dewey. We talked to Robert Mary about the ease of the U.S. victory against the Spanish. The war is over in just a few months. Some 17,000 U.S. trips hit the Caribbean shores. And all of a sudden, the U.S. is on its way to becoming a world power. Uh, so in terms of the, that naval battle and also the one at Santiago, which was almost as devastating, I mean, we destroyed this Spain's Pacific fleet, and then we, as if that wasn't enough, then we just basically destroyed their, their Atlantic fleet. Um, and uh, we did it uh, with hardly any casualties at all. They had huge casualties. We destroyed their ships uh, in, in Manila Bay, as you note, and then come, the Spanish fleet tried to escape from Santiago Harbor, in Cuba, and we basically just ran them all down and, and uh, ran them aground. Um, so it was uh, amazing, easy, um, two naval victories that uh, essentially destroyed the Spanish Empire and made us an empire. Representatives of Spain and the United States signed a peace treaty in Paris on December 10, 1898, which established the independence of Cuba, ceded Puerto Rico and Guam to the United States, and allowed McKinley's government to purchase the Philippine Islands from Spain for $20 million. The war had cost the U.S. $250 million, 3,000 lives, of whom more than 80% had perished from infectious diseases. The McKinley administration also turns its attention to Asia. It's around this time, 1899, that his Secretary of State, John Hay, a fellow Ohioan, you can go back and listen to our John Hay episode, one of my absolute favorites with author John Talafaro. That was season three, Ohio versus the Gilded Age. When we talk about McKinley being the first modern president, he also opens trade to China, and he opens it in a fair and meaningful way. China's not the strong nation that we, that we know today. It was being almost partitioned by the English and the Germans and the Russians. The McKinley administration steps in and creates what's called the open door policy. It creates fair and equal trade, you know, respects China's territorial borders and their sovereignty. Although the Chinese were not consulted on this, it is the first modern step towards trade with the Chinese. It's at this time that McKinley and the Congress decide to annex Hawaii. 
we cover the journey to annexation uh, last season in our episode, Ohio versus Annexation. One of my favorite episodes we've done. Not the most popular among listeners um, for some reason, but go back and listen to that because uh, we're not going to go into the entire takeover of the island by American businessmen, which takes place five years earlier in 1893. But we annexed the island in 1898. We asked Robert Mary what was so important about annexing Hawaii to America. Well, it's all geopolitics. Geopolitics, you know, geography and politics put together um, is what it's all about. And if you look at a map, you see in the Pacific the Hawaiian Islands, and there's nothing else anywhere around it. So if you're, say, you're Japan, circa 1941, and you're being beleaguered by Franklin Roosevelt, and let's just say that Japan had managed to acquire Hawaii, as it was really trying to do uh, up until the time that we got it, then instead of Hawaii being the place they were going to have to attack in order to fight a war with the United States, it would be the place from which they would launch a war with the United States. And just think of the difference between that. So in terms of projecting power outward and preventing anyone from projecting projecting power towards you, uh, Hawaii is as crucial in terms of the Pacific. There isn't anything else even close to the significance of Hawaii. Uh, so our acquisition of Hawaii was absolutely, it, it, was, it was part and parcel of America's rise as a global power. And um, uh, it was noted, and I have this in my book, that uh, people were noting when, you know, the, the famous uh, 1900 um, um, insurrection in Beijing, where the Western uh, uh, powers and diplomatic folks were beleaguered and were in danger of being slaughtered, and they came very close to being slaughtered. And America was able to send for Marines and forces to help other Western nations free those people from it was called 55 Days at Peking. In those days, there was a movie made, Charlton Heston, about it. Um, uh, and if we hadn't had Hawaii and the Philippines, we wouldn't have been able to do that. We would have been at the mercy of other Western allies uh, to help us. But but because we did that, we were in position not only to play a role, but to be the dominant power in terms of negotiating the end of that problem uh, with the forces of China. So um, it was very, very significant in terms of the transformation of America's place in the world and role in the world. As we said earlier, as part of the Treaty of Paris, the U.S. had turned over independence of Cuba to the Cubans. That was not the same for the Philippines. Beginning the next year in 1899, the war shifted to the Philippine Islands, and it was a dirty war. The Filipino people thought the U.S. had won their independence only to find out that they had basically shifted colonizers. The Philippine-American War is the great unknown war of American history. The Philippine insurrectos, as they're called, fought a tough guerrilla war against the United States. The American army did not hold back under McKinley either. It was much like the war in Iraq. Our guest, Robert Mary, likens it to Vietnam. We'll discuss the war in much more detail on our President Taft episode at the end of the season. But here's some of the numbers to consider. 5,000 American servicemen were killed in the Philippine-American War. 20,000 Philippine fighters. It's believed that some 200,000 Philippine citizens died during this savage contest. 
It showed the dark sides of, of imperialism, waterboarding, torture, killing of innocent men, women, and children. It sounds familiar, right? We talked to Robert Mary about the Philippine-American War. Teddy Roosevelt uh, inherited it, um, although it was beginning to wind down. We had captured uh, the great insurrectionist um, um, uh, Aguinaldo uh, during the McKinley administration. But I, I would say that the sort of the uh, analogy that we wanted to use to understand the significance of that uh, war was Vietnam, because it was very similar. It was uh, similar terrain, similar political situation internally, uh, similar difficulties with the insurrectionists who could uh, fight and, and flee, couldn't really gain territory very easily. So, yeah, it was very, very similar. And it was a harbinger of things to come because the world was changing and these um, peoples around the world who'd been subject to uh, the imperial colonial policies of Britain and other Western countries uh, were just less and less inclined to accept that. And so the result was um, a lot of violence and a lot of killing. Teddy Roosevelt returns from the war as an American hero. He becomes the governor of New York, always an important position in national politics. It still is today. You look at Governor Cuomo. Uh, a lot of people want him to be the nominee all of a sudden. In 1899, McKinley's vice president, Garrett Hobart, dies of a heart attack. The party sees Roosevelt as a possible VP pick with the upcoming 1900 election. Many of McKinley's teams are against it, uh, including McKinley himself at first, and Mark Hanna, uh, his, who's now a senator from Ohio, is adamantly against Theodore Roosevelt on the ticket. He calls him that damn cowboy. Per usual, though, Roosevelt is too popular among the rank and file, and he becomes McKinley's running mate for 1900. We talked to Robert Mary about the McKinley-Roosevelt ticket. Now, one person who didn't like Roosevelt at all, hated him, was Hannah. And Hannah set out uh, as a, his personal mission at the uh, 1900 Republican Convention, where there wasn't much of excitement to happen, uh, except that um, the question of who's going to be the vice presidential nominee. Um, and Hannah set out for himself the goal of ensuring that it wasn't going to be Roosevelt. And Roosevelt had been saying he didn't want it. He'd been saying that for months. But he shows up uh, at the convention, at the convention hotel, the headquarters hotel, uh, wearing his um, his Rough Rider hat, <laughs> which was, uh, you know, just the catnip to, uh, the, you know, the uh, the party faithful who were at the convention and who wanted Teddy. It was essentially an announcement that he was available for a draft. Uh, and he was drafted over, uh, I think Hannah might have said something like, over my dead body. And and uh, and McKinley had to send him a, a very stern admonition, stay out of it, get out of it. I don't want, I don't want this situation that you're creating to continue. And, and Hannah had to sort of uh, salute uh, and uh, retreat. McKinley's up for re-election in 1900. And as poorly as the war in the Philippines is going, he's still wildly popular. The critics of his imperial policies, people like Mark Twain and his rematch opponent, William Jennings Bryan. Yes, it's Bryan again from part one of our episode, who's running on, on behalf of the Democrats. Democrats even had a female delegate who seconded Bryan's nomination. It was one of the only historic events that happened in his campaign in 1900. Brian had a tough task in this rematch. The economy's booming. 
McKinley recently won this international war and won it easily. U.S. citizens were feeling confident. They were bullish on the President McKinley administration. And Roosevelt, this new firebrand vice president pick, he's doing a Brian-type barnstorming tour of the country, speaking at rallies. And Brian's not able to sell that silver anti-imperial message to the masses in 1900. McKinley wins the election. 292 electoral votes to 155. He extends his voting advantage to nearly 1 million. I think he won by about five or 600,000 in the first election. He wins more of the states out west and in the plains that he lost to Bryan in 1896. And William McKinley wins a second term. We talk with Robert Mary about the 1900 election. Yeah, I think that uh, what made him so powerful was that he had brought the country, and a lot of it had to do with what he had done, but a lot of it, it was happening anyway. He brought the country out of the panic of 1893, um, which had, which was really a devastating economic downturn. Um, and uh, so it, he basically um, he took the sting out of the currency issues that uh, William Jennings Bryan had been hammering away on. And Bryan was a little bit slow to understand this, and so he was continuing to hammer away at the same issues, the same uh, free coinage of silver uh, advocacy that he had perpetrated so forcefully in 1896, but it didn't have the same resonance because the, the liquidity problem had been pretty much addressed. Uh, so that was a big, big factor. Um, and um, I think that uh, McKinley was beginning to um, talk about this reciprocity concept in terms of trade. Um, and that clearly resonated with people because they could see, you know, greater and greater prosperity as a result of that, as we were able to move into broader markets and satisfy our ability to um, produce um, industrial and agricultural products. Um, and then, uh, you know, he was such a success uh, on the foreign policy front uh, that uh, Americans were feeling highly patriotic and uh, very excited about the, the, where the country was going. Now, doesn't mean that there weren't critics, and there were some severe critics, and there were a lot of Mark Twain and uh, many great writers and thinkers of that time were very, very upset with America moving into the world in the same way that um, that uh, McKinley had us doing. Um, but the general rank and file of American voters was pretty much in sync with what McKinley had done. McKinley is a popular president when he starts his second term in 1901. America at the dawn of the 20th century, a country that is just exploding with modern innovation. One of those events to celebrate the new world power status was the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, New York, that summer of 1901. It was a huge event. Our guest, uh, our new guest from the Buffalo History Museum is the director of exhibits, Anthony Greco. Uh, he's the director of exhibits at the Buffalo History Museum, this Great Museum is in the only building still left from the Pan Am Expo. A really cool museum. You need to check it out next time you're in western New York. Go to buffalohistory.org. But we talked to Tony about what was the Pan American Exposition. And if you look at these impressive pictures and videos from the event, uh, how was there so much light? Pan Am is one of those you know, highlight feature events in Buffalo history. 
And um, it was a world's fair. You know, they did them every few years. Um, it was held in Buffalo between May and November of 1901. And really the goal uh, was to celebrate the achievements of the Western Hemisphere and foster kind of better relations between the nations of North, Central, and, and South America. And so it, it celebrated the industrial, the cultural, uh, and the technological progress. Um, the centerpiece uh, of it being the large-scale use of electricity that was used to uh, excuse me, illuminate the buildings each night. And it wasn't the first there to use electricity, um, but it was the first to do so on such a grand scale. There were exhibits um, featuring electricity in some, to some degree in, in Paris in 1889. And then in Chicago, I think the number was something like they had 100,000 light bulbs um, that were in the white city. And, and it was Buffalo's own Grover Cleveland who in 1893 kind of flicked the switch and illuminated the white city uh, to light up Chicago for the first time. Um, in terms of you know, how many lights were at, at the Pan Am, uh, you know, we, we, we were the first to feature uh, electricity on such a grand scale. And that was really due to the proximity of, of Buffalo to Niagara Falls. It's about 25 miles south of, uh, of Niagara Falls. And the alternating currents from the hydroelectric power um, generated the electricity, shipped it over those 25 miles, and uh, empowered the, the, you know, depending on where you look, there's varying numbers, but it's something like a quarter million light bulbs were illuminated each night in Buffalo. Um, it can be seen from miles around. Early in his second term, McKinley goes on a six-week tour of the country, a victory tour of sorts to the south, the southwest, all the way out to California, before heading back east where he would open the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo in May of 1901. We asked Tony about a change in plans in the president's travel that would prove to be fateful. So McKinley originally, as you said, he, he intended to uh, attend the opening um, of the exposition earlier in May. And, and the trip was part of a longer nationwide tour that he was on. But his wife, Ida, who of course was very frail to begin with, um, she got sick on the trip and um, they actually feared that she was dying. So the trip was cut short and they returned to, uh, to DC. Um, but instead for the opening of the fair, uh, McKinley sent his vice president and former New York State Governor Theodore Roosevelt to formally open the fair on the 20th. Um, and then ultimately, McKinley didn't return to Buffalo until um, uh, September 4th. It's at this point, Leon Cholgosh, an anarchist from Cleveland, Ohio, 28 years old, enters the story. It's a young man in Cleveland. He lost his job. He loses his faith in the church and the Polish church during the Panic of 1893. He was a lost soul. And he begins following the anarchist movement, which is growing globally. They were the terrorists of their day, known for large-scale bombings and for their political assassinations. I mean, here's just a list of their assassinations in and around McKinley's time. President of France, 1894. Prime Minister of Spain, 1897, killed. Empress Elizabeth of Austria, 1898, murdered by anarchists. King Umberto of Italy, 1900. Cholgosh followed these stories, and he subscribed to the anarchist movement and its U.S. leader, Emma Goldman. We talked to Kevin Kern about the anarchist movement at the turn of the century and the would-be assassin, Leon Cholgosh of Cleveland, Ohio. The anarchists were always a fringe group. Um, and so, I mean, you're talking about how popular, there was probably a really only a tiny fraction of the uh, people in Western Europe and the United States who were who were sympathetic to the anarchist movement. But that being said, for what they lacked in numbers, they they kind of made up for it in passion. Uh, and they certainly made uh, a disproportionate splash on world affairs. 
and not the least of which was uh, the fact that uh, they did succeed in staging some of these very high-profile assassinations right before uh, Shalgosh uh, uh, assassinates McKinley. He's obsessively reading about an anarchist who, uh, who assassinated the king of Italy. It's really instructive and fascinating to consider that both Shalgosh and McKinley essentially were from the same state. Uh, uh, Shalgosh uh, spent most of his uh, life with his family in, um, in, in the Cleveland area. So he grew up in the kind of industrial working class uh, areas of, of the state. Of course, McKinley comes uh, from, from Niles and he's well acquainted with uh, industry from the other end of the spectrum. And they're both Ohioans and they both have these ideas of how things ought to be. But of course they go about them uh, very differently. In, in a sense, Shalgosh is, is kind of a wannabe in the same. He's not a major mover or shaker in the anarchist. He wants to be. He, he's a, Again, he's obsessed with Emma Goldman. Emma Goldman was a very influential uh, activist, uh, a very influential writer. Her writings were uh, widely read, not just in the United States, but uh, in um, amongst anarchist circles around the world. She was kind of seen as the kind of one of the big avatars of the movement and Shalgosh really wanted to get in good with her. Uh, and so he, you know, he sought her out. He went to all these uh, anarchist meetings and, and tried to uh, kind of prove that he was, uh, you know, a true believer. Uh, and in some senses, this this whole obsession with uh, with assassinating McKinley, you know, in some ways he, he was trying to impress people like Emma Goldman. He went, wanted to kind of establish his uh, his 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 street cred as as an anarchist. Even people in the anarchist movement were kind of suspicious of him, and he, he seemed to be a little socially awkward. They were afraid that maybe he was a spy, that he wasn't truly an anarchist, and. Uh, and, and that may have even pushed him harder to do something very, very uh, uh, flamboyant, uh, like, like assassinate the president. McKinley's campaign had called him the advance agent of prosperity. And he had turned the economy around in four and a half years in office, leading to his speech and appearance at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo. He would give a speech on tariff reform and reciprocity agreements. American production had exceeded the country's ability to purchase American goods, so we were expanding, and McKinley was supporting an expansion to foreign markets for American goods. It's a major shift from his protectionist stances of the past. And go back and listen to the first episode. He was the, you know, the, the father of the tariff. But he goes to the Pan Am Expo to give a speech about this transformation he's had, this transformation towards reciprocity and actually trading more openly with the world? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good, good question. You know, in today's time, since Reagan, uh, the, sort of the rap on the supply-side economics people is that, uh, you know, whatever ails the country, the solution is tax cuts, right? Well, um, and there's a, there's a germ of truth in that. If, if, if Reagan tax cuts were necessary because the tax... Uh, rates had uh, been allowed to get too high to foster good, solid economic um, um, vibrancy. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that tax cuts are the end-all and be-all for everything that ails the country at any given time. But for McKinley and a lot of the people like him in the Republican Party, generally speaking, 
there was something that was kind of like that. It was like if whatever ails a country, tariffs are the answer. Uh, and Ida Tarbell, the um, hard-charging, uh, muckraking journalist who um, believed in free trade, um, wrote about McKinley that he had a benefit that most people didn't have, which was that he um, totally believed all this stuff like a child. <laughs> and uh, so that was the milieu in which he came out. Uh, and he, at, at Hayes' urging, he embraced the idea that he was going to become the primary leader when it came to protectionism, when it came to tariff policy. And as chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, he became well-positioned to do that, which is why he has a, a trade bill named after him, um, the uh, Tariff Bill of 1890. What happened was that as we moved into that uh, panic of 1893 and the emergence of the uh, currency issue and questions about liquidity, um, and you could begin to see – uh, that America had a capacity for production like no other country in the world, both industrial and agricultural. And McKinley began to discern, and it's to his great credit, that he was able to alter this fundamental conviction, uh, economic conviction that he had held all his life. He began to discern that if the, this country were going to make it possible for for all of the productive capacity to find markets for what's for all the goods and services, goods in those days particularly, uh, that were being created, um, we were going to have to find foreign markets. And tariffs were a, bar a barrier to that kind of free flow of goods across borders. And so he, um, he, he altered his view he didn't just become a free trader in the tradition of a James Polk or a Andrew Jackson, but he embraced this idea, which I think had sort of emerged from James G. Blaine of Maine, the plume knight, um, uh, who said uh, we should have a, a sort of a reciprocal approach where we have uh, you, know, you know bilateral agreements with other countries and and We'll, we have high tariffs, and they probably have high tariffs. We'll bring ours down if they bring theirs down, and uh, we can have a lot more trade, and we can um, have better markets for these American goods being produced. And so he embraced that. And in fact, in Buffalo, where he ultimately was assassinated, uh, he gave a speech in which he very dramatically um, explained – he didn't say, I've changed my mind – but he explained the new thinking – that had emerged in his consciousness. Uh, and it was a very impressive uh, transformation. We talked with Tony Greco from the Buffalo History Museum about McKinley's arrival at the Pan Am. He's going to deliver this final speech of his life on reciprocity, like we said, trade reciprocity, and foreign affairs. Presidents before McKinley, they didn't talk about foreign affairs in speeches. This is a great example of how he was the architect of the American century. You'll hear McKinley's final speech before the over 100,000 gathered at the Pan Am that day. It's actually the voice of an actor. It's not McKinley's actual voice. There's a voice recording you can find on the web. Um, there's also a video recording. That's the Edison Company was following him around. You can see him give that speech with the 
The audio is added later. We talk with Tony Greco about that final speech McKinley gives on September 5th, 1901. On the 5th, he delivers the speech. There was something like 116,000 people. Uh, in total, throughout the six months, Buffalo and the Pan Am welcomes 8 million people to the fair. Um, but on this day, 116,000 people, something like 10,000 more than the next busiest day. And he addressed a crowd of about 40,000 people from the Triumphal Bridge. He spoke uh, about foreign affairs. He mentions um, the purposes of the Spanish-American War, commercial expansion, and of course, uh, expositions. He was, he was a fan of expositions, and he, he famously called them, he said, expositions are the timekeepers of progress. Great statistics indicate that this country is in a state of unexampled prosperity. The figures show that we are furnishing profitable employment to the millions of working men throughout the United States. Our capacity to produce has developed so enormously and our products have so multiplied that the problem of more markets requires our urgent and immediate attention. By sensible trade arrangements, which will not interrupt our home production, we shall extend the outlet for our increasing surplus. What we produce beyond our domestic consumption must have vent abroad. Reciprocity treaties are in harmony with the spirit of the time. The expansion of our trade and commerce is the pressing problem. We must build the Isthmian Canal, which will unite the two oceans. The construction of a Pacific table cannot be longer postponed. In the furtherance of these objects of national interest and concern, you are performing an important part. The good work will go on. It cannot be stopped. Kinley's statue at the Ohio State House, he's holding a copy of that speech. But he goes against the advice of his advisors and the security detail, and he moves forward with a meet and greet at the Temple of Music inside the Expo grounds the next day, on Friday, September 6, 1901. It does make you wonder why there wasn't better security. All these international leaders killed in the previous years, Lincoln, Garfield, murdered uh, you know, in the previous 35 years. But there's just not the type of Secret Service security detail that we see today. There's nothing close. We talked why that was with, with Anthony Greco. And he's supposed to greet people at the Temple of Music. So um, at 4 o'clock, um, thousands of people stood in line to shake hands with the president. Um, and and um, as I'm sure you're familiar with, McKinley kind of prided himself on how many hands he could shake in a short amount of time. There's, there's, one, there's one account where somebody says he could, he could shake 50 hands in a minute. The event was removed from the itinerary uh, a couple times due to the president's safety. Again, thinking back on, on other leaders and different assassinations of the time period. Uh, McKinley insisted that it actually take place, and he told Cordelieu, his personal secretary, you know, why should I, why should I not do this? No, who's going to want to hurt me? Leon Cholgosh is in line at the Temple of Music. He has his hand wrapped up in a handkerchief. Underneath the handkerchief is a 32 caliber Ivor Johnson revolver. That same gun is on display at Anthony's Buffalo History Museum. We talk with Tony Greco about the shooting of President McKinley on September 6, 1901. Shulgoff has got his gun concealed. It's concealed under a handkerchief. He comes up to the president, 
fires two shots from from his uh, from under the handkerchief. He's got a 32 caliber Iver Johnson revolver. It's you know a cheap gun that first shot ricochets off one of McKinley's buttons, and then the second shot goes into his abdomen. And agents pile on and, and they begin sh- uh, beating Sholdos. And as a matter of fact, McKinley said, "Go easy on him." Um, and then afterward, uh, Sholdos is dragged off to a, a small room in the back where where the agents start questioning him. You know, of course, they want to see if he's working alone, who he's associated with, if there's any more danger. Um, but also, they're kind of protecting them because you've still got thousands of people who are gathered. You know, the word is spread about what's happened, and you know, you've got an angry mob outside. So they want to they want to take down the shooter, basically. McKinley needs immediate surgery, but they can't find the bullet. There's still not the antisepsis and sanitized medical procedures we're used to. We talked to Tony about the treatment he receives right after the shooting. He's shot on the 6th, and of course he needed immediate medical attention. Now, there was an emergency hospital on the Pan Am grounds, but like all the other structures at the fair, it's just a temporary structure, so it's ill-equipped to handle, you know, anything but the most routine medical situation. Basically, it's a glorified first aid station. And, you know, ironically, in a World's Fair celebrating the new technology of electricity, there's no electric lights at the Pan Am Hospital. So while they're operating on the president, you've got one of the um, assisting physicians or one of the attending physicians is actually forced to take a, a mirror and try and redirect sunlight that's coming through the window and direct it toward McKinley and the other surgeons so they could fish around for this bullet in his wound. So, so the doctor who's operating on him, he's a man named uh, Dr. Matthew Mann. And, and while he's you know, certainly a talented and accomplished doctor, um, he's very well respected in the community, he's a gynecologist. So he's probably not the perfect person to be operating on the president. And at first, McKinley is getting better. The cabinet comes to his, his side in Buffalo. The public is reassured that McKinley's going to be all right. But within a couple of days, he develops a terrible infection. And the life of the 25th president, William McKinley of Canton, Ohio, nears its end. With the wound itself, the bullet punctured McKinley's stomach. And despite the doctor's best efforts, they couldn't locate it. Um, another irony that stems from the Pan Am is that uh, on display at the Pan Am was an early x-ray machine. You know, they could have, if somebody had thought of it, they could have wheeled it in and x-rayed the president and potentially found found the bullet. Um, but seeing as how none of the doctors had any experience with it, no one thought to retrieve it and use it. McKinley afterward, he's, he's treated at the hospital and he's taken to the home of John Milburn, who's the, the, the Pan Am Exposition Company's, uh, he's the president of the board of managers and he's a friend of McKinley's. And for a time, it does seem like he's going to get better. Um, And then after a few days, uh, he takes a turn for the worse. And then ultimately, he dies of an infection. He dies of gangrene in an upstairs bedroom at at Milburn's house on the 14th. A nation mourns. William McKinley dies on September 14, 1901 in Buffalo, New York. Theodore Roosevelt is sworn in in Buffalo as the 26th president. The site where he dies, the Milburn House, it's not there if you if you go to see it now. It's really not a whole lot to see. As you recall, the Pan Am was torn down after the 1901 exposition. The only building remaining is Anthony's building, the which is now the Buffalo History Museum. But there's a small plaque, and it's on the property of Canisius High School, commemorating the place where McKinley died. A listener here in Columbus, a friend of mine, Vince Zuccaro, he attended Canisius High. 
He always told me about that marker for McKinley, and it's there. It's basically in a high school parking lot. Cholgotch goes on trial, and it all happens real quick. We talked to Tony Greco about the assassin's trial and his execution just a month later in 1901. Um, so he's immediately arrested, um, and, and he's tried and executed in a very, very short amount of time compared to especially what we're used to today. From the initial shooting through his execution, um, the whole thing happens uh, within something like seven weeks. Uh, his, his, and his trial is really fascinating because at no point, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, at no point does he express any regret. He doesn't say that he's sorry for doing it. He expresses no remorse. He even refuses to work with the court-appointed defense attorneys that, you know, that are given to him. And he refuses to work with the expert psychiatrist uh, appointed to evaluate his sanity because really the only, his only hope of getting out of this was to get an insanity plea. At his arraignment, he even attempted to plead guilty, but it was the judge who, you know, told him to stop and he intervened, uh, excuse me, intervened and made him change it to a not guilty plea. And so the, the, his trial starts on the 23rd uh, and it's, it lasts something like eight hours. The jury only deliberates for something like a half hour. And, you know, they come back and they find him guilty. The defense called uh, called no witnesses. And, and largely this is attributed to, again, the idea that he wasn't cooperating. And on the 29th of October, he's electrocuted. Uh, they give him three jolts, uh, 1800 volts, uh, three jolts at 1800 volts each, and he's pronounced dead uh, at 714 uh, a.m. On September 17th, McKinley's state funeral takes place in D.C. He lies in state in the Capitol in the East Room of the White House. A giant procession wades through the Capitol onto a train bound for Canton. Hundreds of thousands of people would turn up as the train stops in cities and towns along the way. He's then laid to rest in Canton, Ohio. The country took this very hard. There were discussions of the ease of access to guns and the issues of mental health, just like we're having today 120 years later. We finish our conversation with Anthony Greco from the Buffalo History Museum to talk about what three assassinations of presidents might have felt like. You've got three presidential assassinations within 36 years. You know, so you've got Lincoln in 65, you've got um, Garfield, and then you've got McKinley. And, you know, considering the next one is not until 63, it, it must have really had been kind of like a traumatic experience for people to live through this. And to put things in perspective for you and I, it would have been the equivalent of, of you know, having Reagan assassinated, uh, Clinton, and then, and then, you know, Trump in the same time span. So imagine how living through those events would have shaped your understanding of the world. We close today with our great guest and biographer, Robert Mary, to discuss the subtitle of his book, President McKinley. Subtitle is Architect of the American Century. We conclude by just talking about McKinley's legacy and his role in transforming America into what would become a global superpower. And so, so I was trying to be provocative, but I think maybe I, 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 if I had to do over again, I think I would ponder that uh, subtitle a little bit more because I think it might have been a little off-putting to some book buyers thinking that this author is trying to make more out of McKinley than he really is. I'm not sure I would agree with that, but I, this wasn't a debate in which I was able to explain myself. Um, and so maybe that wasn't the smartest uh, uh, s- subtitle, but I, I, can, I can defend it, and, and I'm, I'm always comfortable, and even I get kind of energized when I am defending it. If you think about how he stood at the threshold of the 20th century, 
uh, and took America into the world uh, and created the, the um, language um, um, and the idiom uh, that resonated with people with regard to America's role in the world. Um, you would have to say that uh, he was a very significant consequential figure uh, in preparing America for what it was to become uh, as a result of first sort of this sputtering uh, effort to go global with Woodrow Wilson in World War I, which I think was a complete failure, and ultimately the great success of Franklin Roosevelt in 1941, you know, 1945. McKinley is not known as an architect of anything. Uh, let least of all the American century that uh, Henry Luce talked about and that we've talked about ever since. Go read Bob's book, President McKinley, Architect of the American Century from 2017, published by Simon & Schuster. Uh, Really great book, and we appreciate him coming on. That's going to do it for episode one. There will only be a couple of two-part episodes this season, but we thought McKinley warranted this super deep dive. Please, if you can, share the show on Facebook with your friends. Subscribe to the podcast on your phone. All that stuff really helps. Leave us a review. Uh, Like we said, we'll read a few on the air this season. There's a great three-part series coming out on Memorial Day on the History Channel called Grant. It's about our 18th president and one of our first celebrity presidents, Ulysses S. Grant. The Georgetown, Ohio native will be the subject of our second episode out Memorial Day weekend, Ulysses S. Grant vs. the World. He's a president that's rising faster than any other U.S. president these days in all these presidential rankings you'll see. We'll delve into his life in Ohio and why his presidency is being seen as a success now in the 21st century after being one of the lowest presidents on the list a total failure throughout the 19th and 20th thanks again to all our guests robert mary kevin kern from the university of akron will definitely have to have you back amber ferris of the mckinley birthplace museum and niles go visit them uh, after this coronavirus clears up uh, at mckinleybirthplacemuseum.org just outside of youngstown Uh, kyle kondik for the virginia center for politics he'll be joining us throughout the season And, of course, Anthony Greco, uh, the director of exhibits at the Buffalo History Museum. You can check them out. They've got great McKinley stuff on the the website, buffalohistory.org, and I can't wait to go see the museum in person uh, in western New York. We'll see you for episode two. Thank you so much for listening. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you for Ulysses S. Grant versus the world. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.